Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. My name is Craig Hadley and I am a pastor here at Paradox Church. Paradox began about five years ago and we meet in Redlands, California, but we also have a bustling online community. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, welcome. I'm glad that you are here. I have to tell you one thing that's different about Paradox than other churches is that at Paradox, we design sermons to start discussions and not end them. This sermon that you are about to listen to is by no means meant to be the authoritative word on the day that Jesus spent in the grave. And that is the topic that we are talking about today. And we are in part two of our resurrection series. And the title of this sermon is The Grave of God. are currently on part two of our three-part series on Resurrection Weekend. In last week's sermon, we discussed the story of the cross on Friday. Next week, we will talk about the empty tomb on Sunday, which means that today we are going to speak about the day when the grave of God was not empty. This day is known as Holy Saturday, and it is puzzling and mysterious, and it is a day caught between death and life. In other words, Holy Saturday is a metaphor for how we experience reality today. Because we live with an abundance of death juxtaposed against a plethora of life. To talk about Holy Saturday this year, I want to tell you about one of the most popular film franchises of all time, Star Wars. When I was eight years old, I fell in love with Star Wars when I first watched all three movies at my aunt and uncle's house. My favorite characters quickly became Han Solo and Chewbacca. I loved watching Han and Chewie take on the Empire, banter back and forth, and develop one of cinema's ultimate bromances. Whenever Chewie and Han were on the screen, I hung on every passing frame with rapt attention. I rewatched these movies frequently. So frequently, in fact, that it became a mild obsession. I learned the names of all of the characters in the movies, even the ones who appeared on screen for just a few seconds. To give you an idea of how cool I was, my friends and I spent hours playing the Star Wars customizable card game. Yes, I am that cool. I was one of the first in line at the movie theaters to see the updated special editions to the original trilogy. And while these special editions are reviled by most fans today, I have to tell you that when I saw them in the seventh grade, I loved every minute of George's extra editions. Because in my mind, more Star Wars always meant more happiness. Around the time that the special editions were released, George Lucas announced that he would be making three new Star Wars films. I was so excited, I just about wet my polyester pants. In 1999, several friends of mine, including Brandon Herman, Eric Peterson, and Corey Fuller, drove down to Riverside on opening day for the first of these films in 1999. We waited in line for hours to ensure that we would get a good seat to see Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Now this film is objectively terrible. It is currently sitting at 52% on Rotten Tomatoes. But can I tell you how I felt about The Phantom Menace in 1999? I loved it. And I am not ashamed. 
I was 14 years old, and the pod races and lightsabers and star battles spoke to my soul. I saw The Phantom Menace four times in the theaters, and I have no regrets. Three years later, I was a senior in high school when George Lucas released Attack of the Clones. I saw this movie in Redlands, and I had high hopes. However, as soon as the movie finished, when the first credits began to roll, I turned to my friend who was watching the movie with me, and I said, Wow. That movie was awful. Because let's face it, Attack of the Clones is awful. Now, I've only seen Attack of the Clones once, and quite honestly, that was one time too many. And for the first time in my life, as a senior in high school, I wondered if I was getting too old for Star Wars. Three years later, in 2005, I skeptically saw the sixth movie of the franchise, Revenge of the Sith, with both of my brothers. And in that movie... George Lucas won me back. At 21 years old, I found that I still loved lightsaber battles and jumbled philosophies from Yoda. Not only that, but George even gave me a cameo from one of my old-time favorites, Chewbacca. I wasn't too old for Star Wars. Attack of the Clones was just terrible. Now, I was entirely back on board with the Star Wars hype train. Ten years later, Disney, the new owner of Star Wars, learned from the cameo of Chewbacca in Revenge of the Sith and how happy it made people like me, and Disney then released the seventh film in the franchise, The Force Awakens, in 2015. And because Disney knows how to make money, they brought back Han and Chewie. Oh my gosh. These two were my heroes when I was eight, and here I was at the age of 32, just as Starstruck struck to see them on screen again. Needless to say, I loved The Force Awakens, primarily because I got to go on another adventure with Han and Chewie. And my word, it was one of the most fun moments I've ever had watching a movie. But Disney decided that they didn't want me to have too much fun. And at the end of The Force Awakens, Disney killed Han Solo in dramatic fashion. I have to tell you, I still haven't really forgiven Disney for killing Han Solo. Star Wars just isn't as much fun without Han Solo. And two years later, we got The Last Jedi with Han nowhere to be seen. Instead, we got the return of Luke Skywalker. Now, when I first saw this film, I was excited to hang out with Luke Skywalker again. Because Luke was the optimistic hero who con consistently believed in the goodness of others. However, the filmmakers, apparently, felt that optimism and goodness were played out. So they turned Luke Skywalker into a really cranky old white dude. I did not enjoy hanging out with cranky Luke at all. Which in turn meant that I did not enjoy The Last Jedi at all. They still had Chewbacca in this movie, but Chewie received minimal screen time. With what little time he had, the filmmakers gave Chewie the task of hanging out with Porgs, which had little consequence on the overall plot. Now, shortly after the release of this film, Disney announced that the next film, the ninth film, would be the final film in the Star Wars Skywalker saga. And in 2019, we received The Rise of Skywalker. I once again handed my money over to the theaters, hoping for something better than Cranky Luke and the Porgs. The Rise of Skywalker begins with heroes and villains zooming across the galaxy trying to collect a random assortment of objects. 
At one of those collection points, the main hero, Ray, with her squad composed of Finn, Poe, C-3PO, and my still favorite living character in the universe, Chewbacca, looking for something on a planet that constantly hosts Burning Man festivals. While on this planet, Chewie is captured by stormtroopers and placed in a transport ship. The transport ship begins to take off when suddenly the villain Kylo Ren shows up and begins to duel with our hero, Rey. Their fight begins by Kylo and Rey using the force to steer the transport ship that just took off with Chewbacca aboard. The ship is caught between hero and villain, and the ship begins to buckle under the weight of the invisible forces placed on its hull from the competing characters. We see the ship strain and spin in opposing directions as though Rey and Kylo are in a competitive arm wrestling match in the sky. Now, after a few tense moments of back and forth between Rey and Kylo, Rey kicks it into overdrive. She clenches her teeth and gives all of her being into the force and then, boom, lightning shoots from her hand. The lightning envelops the ship and then the lightning from the hand causes the ship to explode in a ball of fire. Chewie, yells Rey. She looks down at her hand in disbelief. She is incredulous that her goodwill has killed her friend Chewbacca. I remember watching this scene in the theater in shock. I thought to myself, holy smokes, did Ray just kill Chewbacca? Chewbacca, one of my favorite movie characters of all time, who I rooted and cheered for since my childhood, was just gone? And Chewbacca wasn't given a hero's death. Rather, Chewbacca was merely collateral damage. I did not see this coming. I did not prepare for this. Wow. Ray killed Chewbacca. Over the next several seconds, I began to realize that this moment between Kylo Ren, Ray, and the lightning exploding the ship in the sky might be the most important moment in Star Wars history since Darth Vader told Luke, I am your father. And just as I started to feel the weight of these implications, my thought process was quickly interrupted. I use the word quickly because the moment of Chewbacca's death occurs at the 40 minute and 55 second mark of the film. At the 42 minute and 50 second mark, just 115 seconds after the explosion, not even a full two minutes, a character on screen informs us that there were not one, but two transport ships in the desert that day. And 10 seconds later, after we received that information, at the 43 minute mark, we see Chewbacca on screen again. He's alive. He was on a different transport ship than the one that Rey destroyed with her lightning. We didn't see Chewbacca for 125 seconds, and we lived with the experience of his death for a mere 115 seconds. At the sight of Chewbacca on the screen again, the person sitting next to me reacted to Chewbacca's reappearance with enthusiastic applause. I heard my neighbor whisper, oh, I'm so glad he's alive which is interesting 
Because when my neighbor said this, I felt myself disagreeing with that neighbor. At the exact same moment when my neighbor applauded in the exact same theater watching the exact same movie, I thought to myself, man, I am so disappointed that Chewie is still alive. Now, this is a strange thought for me to have because remember, Chewbacca is my favorite character in the Star Wars universe at this point. And yet he reappears on screen and my reaction is, uh, I kind of like this movie better when he was dead. Why was I disappointed that one of my favorite movie characters was still alive? To answer this question, I'd like to take you back to film school. Shortly after I graduated from high school, I enrolled at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. In my very first class, which was quite literally Movie Making 101, I made a short film that revolved around a tragedy. The professor of my class, a man named Robert Menard, watched this film in its entirety. After the credits of this film rolled, he paused and then he looked at me. Now, I could immediately tell that my professor did not think that my film was very good. As a master teacher, Professor Menard gently told me that the film missed the mark. He said it missed because I didn't appropriately deal with the gravity of the tragedy at the center of the film. He then brought the class together and led them into a larger discussion about the techniques great filmmakers use to handle tragedy, sorrow, grief, and even death in their stories. He said to us, a death in a movie is only meaningful if the surviving characters are given time and space to grieve. And when you consider this lesson, that Robert Menard taught us in Movie Making 101, he very accurately answers the question as to why I was disappointed that Chewbacca came back from the dead. I was disappointed because that moment rendered Chewbacca's death as meaningless. The filmmakers of Rise of Skywalker did not give more than two minutes for the surviving characters to grieve the death of Chewbacca. The audience only had 115 seconds to process Chewie's death. And while some audience members may have felt overwhelming sadness at the loss of a Star Wars icon, they only felt that loss for a very short amount of time before the whiplash of his survival brought them out of their sorrow. In this movie, there was hardly any time or space to grieve the death of Chewbacca. And the absence of that space for grief made Chewbacca's death feel cheap and ultimately meaningless. Now, when I saw this movie for the first time, I remember that scene of Ray shooting lightning and the transport ship exploding. I thought that this scene might be the most important scene in Star Wars since Vader's reveal. But because Chewbacca lived without any space to grieve, that scene went from powerful to trivial in a matter of seconds. This moment went from being one of the most impactful plot points in the series 
to being a visual spectacle that did not change the course of the story at all. All of this tells us something about how scenes like this become valuable or how scenes like this become insignificant to a story. You see, the space between the death of Chewbacca and the life of Chewbacca is what gives that moment when Rey shot lightning all of its significance. Some of us have spent decades, I repeat, decades, rooting for Chewbacca. And all of those decades ran smack into an emotional speed bump of 115 seconds to feel the loss of our hero in theaters. This simply was not enough time to process anything. The filmmakers attempted to tell a resurrection story in Star Wars Episode Nine, And the filmmakers botched the story. This is because they rushed from the death of Chewbacca to his immediate resurrection and completely neglected the space in between. My film professor once told me that a death in a movie is only meaningful if the surviving characters are given time and space to grieve. Considering these words, I have to ask you, is Robert Menard talking about movies or is Robert Menard talking about life? Because for me, the answer is yes. Yes, he is. Which is why I find Robert Menard's words to be so helpful in our discussion on Holy Saturday. For thousands of years now, Christians have told the story of Resurrection Weekend. On Friday, we tell the story of God's death. And on Sunday, we tell the story of God's resurrection. But how do we tell the story of Saturday? The space between death and resurrection. Because how we tell the story of Holy Saturday determines the impact, determines the meaning, and even determines the significance of Jesus Christ's death on Friday. All of the emotional force of the resurrection story is tied to how well we can imagine and tell the story of Christ in the tomb on Saturday. And if we rush from Friday to Sunday, and we do not create time and space to grieve the death of Jesus on Saturday, then we will find that the cross becomes cheap and also becomes meaningless. So let's turn to the Bible and read the story of Holy Saturday according to the Gospel of John. And when we get there, we quickly realize that John does not mention Holy Saturday at all. John 19 ends with the burial of Jesus on Friday night. And the very next verse reads, Early on the first day of the week, John rushes from Friday to Sunday. So we turn to Matthew to see how he tells the story of the grave of God. Now, Matthew 27 gives us a full paragraph on Holy Saturday. But this paragraph is told, surprisingly, from the Roman perspective. The Romans are the people who just executed Jesus Christ. And we are told of the process that led the Romans to decide to place guards around the grave of Jesus on Saturday in an effort to ensure that no one might steal Christ's body. None of the words in this paragraph about Holy Saturday are devoted to those who grieve. 
Now, after that paragraph, Matthew returns the perspective of his gospel back to those who are in mourning. But we are instantly transported to Sunday. He skips over the grieving of Saturday by beginning his 28th chapter with the words, after the Sabbath. What this means is that Matthew, like John, rushes from Friday to Sunday. In the Gospel of Mark, we read about Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, witnessing the burial of Christ on Friday. And then we turn the page to the very next verse and read, quote, when the Sabbath was over. And then we are immediately walking with Mary, Mary, and Salome to the tomb on Sunday. And Mark, just like Matthew, and just like John, rushes from Friday to Sunday. Which brings us to the Gospel of Luke. In the 23rd chapter of Luke, we read about the burial of Jesus on Friday evening. Shortly thereafter, Luke writes about Holy Saturday with the words, On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Luke is the only gospel writer to give the bereaved a full sentence on Holy Saturday. But my friends, Luke only gives Holy Saturday that one sentence. The very next verse tells us about Sunday. And Luke, just like Matthew, just like Mark, and just like John, rushes from Friday to Sunday. This hasty progression drains the emotional core of the story of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. I just read to you all that we have that the Gospels contain about what was felt on Holy Saturday. I often wonder how different the entire story of Jesus would be if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each dedicated one entire chapter to their respective Gospels as to what happened on Holy Saturday. Imagine if we could hear the conversations between Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene on Holy Saturday. What would they talk about? What might they share about their grief? Wouldn't that kind of chapter shift the weight of the story of Jesus? Imagine if we had a record of the arguments between Peter, James, and John as they realized the sins of their abandonment during their rabbi's hour of need. They might process their guilt together and through tears express deep remorse. Wouldn't all three of these disciples become infinitely more relatable with those arguments? Aren't we missing out when we gloss over what they felt on that day? Imagine if the writers told us about the reactions of the sisters Mary and Martha from Bethany. Maybe these sisters spent all of Saturday in complete silence. Maybe they were too overcome with grief to put any sensible sentence into a sequence. Wouldn't their silence bring a reverent gravity to the cross? Wouldn't that silence somehow make the death of Jesus even more meaningful? Or imagine if we had a fifth gospel, one where the opening chapter was the crucifixion of Jesus and the author of this hypothetical gospel then spent the next 20 chapters discussing the events of Holy Saturday. In this hypothetical gospel, we hear people remembering Jesus. We see the tears streaming down their faces and we sit with others as they process the loss of Christ. And then in the 22nd and final chapter of this hypothetical gospel, 
Imagine that the author spends that chapter telling us about the resurrection. I mean, isn't that the gospel that we all need right now? Wouldn't those words tell us all that we need to know about Jesus? My friends, if you know me, then you know that I love the Bible. Our whole community here at Paradox is built around the discussions that arise from the Bible's pages. And we gather at least once a week to open the word and see what it has to say to us about life today. And while we all love this book, we do not find this book to be perfect in any way, shape, or form. In fact, one of my strongest critiques of the Bible is that it lets all of us down in the way it tells the story of Holy Saturday. The gospel writers attempt to tell us about Christ's resurrection. And in my opinion, the gospel writers botch the story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all rush from the death of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus. They completely neglect the space in between. That neglect gives us the sense that Christ's death is trivial. But when we see the tears rolling down Peter's face, when we sit with the unanswerable questions of Mary's sorrow, and when we hold the trembling body of John, it is in those moments between the text that we find the death of Jesus to be anything but superfluous. Instead, it is in those very moments that we find the death of Jesus to be meaningful. The surviving characters were not given time and space to grieve in the Gospels. And the absence of that space drains the impact of the story of Christ on the cross. If we want the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be meaningful today, then we need to learn how to tell the story of Jesus with an emphasis on Holy Saturday. Now, while the Gospels are lacking in details of Holy Saturday, artists have come forward and recognized the problematic nature of this gap. And when I gave this sermon on Saturday, I have to tell you that I showed many of these paintings depicting Holy Saturday. So I would encourage you to look up these paintings and artworks that I am about to reference. The first one I would like to call your attention to was painted back in the year 1490. Italian artist Andrea Mantegna depicted the dead body of Christ with his grieving mother next to him. Now, when we sit with this painting for just a moment, we can feel the weight of Christ's death. The cross isn't meaningless in this moment. Mary's tears are not meaningless in this scene. This moment right here is saturated with meaning. But the story of this painting does not end with the painting itself. In 2008, the artist Kahindi Wiley felt that this painting needed an update to speak to our current context here in America. So Kahindi Wiley painted The Lamentation Over the Dead Christ, which takes Mantegna's painting and replaces it with a black man in contemporary clothing. This is Christ for Kahindi Wiley. And while Mantegna's painting is moving to me, Wiley's painting hits home for me. There's something about his painting that brings a present urgency to the message of the cross. 
And this painting raises all kinds of questions. Why do we still have the death penalty in America today? I mean, after Jesus Christ was unjustly executed by the Roman Empire, shouldn't Christians everywhere be against the death penalty? Because if the state executed our Lord and Savior, then should the state ever have the power to execute anyone? Kahinde Wiley's painting is a poignant reminder that Christ is being executed on a regular basis here in America today, and we have a responsibility to stop the regular death of Christ. Another painting that speaks to me about what Holy Saturday is a painting that we spoke about last year for Holy Saturday. It is by the artist Hans Holbein, and it's entitled Body of Christ in the Tomb. Now, this painting adds so much to the story of resurrection, which is missing from the Bible, because it depicts Jesus as a life-size figure lying in a sarcophagus that is the painting's frame. Kahinde Wiley also updated this painting in 2007. And once again, Wiley's painting brings forward all kinds of emotions about the present reality of Christ's death in our society today. During this past week, which began the trial of Derek Chauvin, it's more important than ever to remember that Jesus was a person of color unjustly executed by the police of his day. And the church of his day supported the police. We must not repeat the same sins today. And that urgency is brought to the fore when we consider Kahinde Wiley's painting of Holy Saturday. In 1753, Italian sculptor Giuseppe San Martino carved the veiled Christ. 255 years later, Kahinde Wiley updated the sculpture with his painting of the same name. Now, this painting for me moves the soul and reminds me of the tangible stillness that we experience at funerals. This painting is motionless. It reminds me of the fact that death takes up time and space without any productivity. And in our hyperactive world that is addicted to our own busyness and own sense of self-importance, death often enters in as an interruption and demands that we slow down, grieve, and reorder our lives around the things that truly matter. For me, when I look at all six of these pieces of art, there is a certain reverence for the death of Christ that is lacking when I just read the Bible. Because when I look at the Kahinde Wiley paintings, I must say that I feel the heaviness of Christ's death. I feel the tears of those who loved him. I feel the meaning of the cross. And looking at these paintings, I am reminded of the name that Christianity has assigned to the day that is depicted in all of these art pieces. The name is Holy Saturday. And I love that name. That name is entirely counterintuitive when we consider what the name represents. After all, this is the day when God is in the grave. This is the day when the stone lays over the tomb. This is the day when the tears flowed the most from the people who survived Jesus. And Christians declare that this is the day that is holy. My friends, the message of Holy Saturday is that we are human beings. And as human beings, we need time and space to grieve. 
I can still remember exactly where I was when Princess Diana died. I was in the seventh grade. It was a Saturday night, and I had several friends over to my house to play with Nerf guns. My mom interrupted our Nerf skirmish to tell us that Princess Diana died, and all of us tween boys stopped and stared at each other. It impacted us on some level, which is strange because none of us really thought about or cared about the royal family of Britain. Over the next several weeks, the gates of Buckingham Palace were surrounded by flowers from those who came to express their condolences. Those flowers were several feet deep, and people traveled from around the world to lay their flowers in front of the palace. This is really stunning when you consider that hardly any of the people who laid these flowers at the gates personally knew Princess Diana. Irish philosopher Peter Rollins has talked about this moment a number of times. He has said that we are all carrying grief with us in our daily lives, but our society asks us to repeatedly repress that grief. Our society only offers a handful of spaces where it is considered socially acceptable to grieve. So when a national tragedy occurs, like the death of a princess, people flock from far and wide and buy flowers and shed tears because society all of a sudden says, oh, you know what, you can grieve now. It's like the death of a princess is a release valve for everyone as they are finally given permission to grieve all that they are holding. What this tells us is that we do not have enough time or enough space to grieve in our lives today. The more productive and the more technology and the more busyness we accept in our own lives, the more we will find that it is harder to give space to our grief. This is why the message of Holy Saturday is more important than ever. We need time and space to grieve. That time and that space is what gives meaning to all that we experience. And when we put our productivity on hold and give ourselves time and space and relationships to grieve, it is at that moment that we are living a holy life. So my question for you right now is this. What grief are you carrying with you today? Have you given yourself time and space to experience and express sorrow? Because the space that you give to that sorrow is not a waste of space. That space is what our tradition calls holy. We have endured the most tragic year in our church's brief history. We have faced a pandemic, struggled through economic uncertainty, surrendered almost all of our social interactions, and buried our friends and family. While no one experienced the suffering of the pandemic in the same way, we have all experienced suffering because of the pandemic. And today, on Holy Saturday 2021, I believe the best way that you can practice the faith of a Christian, the best way you can honor the death of God, and the best way you can celebrate Easter is for you to make a day where you give yourself time and space to grieve. This is true of Holy Saturday every year. This is the day when we grieve those we have lost to death, even if that death occurred 26 years ago. This is the day when we shed tears for the broken relationships in our lives, 
even if other people are tired of hearing about this struggle. This is the day when we accept that we are all carrying grief. And the best thing that we can do for ourselves is to stop producing products and simply live with our sorrow. Yes, Sunday is coming. But Sunday is not today. Today is Saturday, and Saturday is holy. For 2,000 years, Christians have marked this day, Holy Saturday, as a time and space for us to grieve. And we are the most faithful to the tradition of Christianity when we grieve. What grief are you carrying with you today? Can you make time and space to live with your sadness. My friends, may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, even in our grief, in our sorrow, in our sadness, and in the day that God stayed in the grave. Amen.